Be just, be kind, be humble, be generous, be perfect. Eek. At first, Jesus' final words in today's gospel sound like a confirmation of what my inner perfectionist has suspected all along. There are no A's for effort. Achievement is all that matters, and those who say otherwise are just excusing their failures. It's hard to get ahead in this town without some version of this script running through our heads. There's at least one problem with it, though. When the only goal is error-free ball, the focus is completely on us. Mercy, humility, generosity, justice for anyone but us, they all go out the window. Profound self-centeredness masked as a pursuit of excellence cannot be what Jesus expects. Besides, when we demand perfection of ourselves and others and exempt ourselves from the messiness of real life, we become useless. Just another sports fan turned pundit carping from the couch, doing nothing to actually help win the game. Given the election we're heading into, we cannot afford to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. The stakes are too high for all or nothing thinking, for pretending that opting out keeps our hands clean. We still have choices to make, choices that matter, and demanding perfection at all costs does nothing to move the ball forward. It might help if we take a closer look at what's here in Matthew. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This has stuck in our collective craw from the start. In fact, Luke was so certain that Matthew didn't hear Jesus correctly, in his version of the same sermon, it's be merciful, therefore, as your heavenly Father is merciful. That sounds a little less impossible. There could also be a translation issue here. The Greek word translated in today's gospel as perfect can also be translated as whole or complete. As in be whole, therefore, as your heavenly father is whole. I'm not sure we can ever be truly whole in this life either, but it is a vision we can strive for. What might our lives look like if they weren't broken by bitterness or resentment or hate? Jesus sets us on this path with his directive to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The love called for here is not about feelings of warmth and affection, thank God. No, it's about our behavior and the choices we make. When we love others, we seek their highest good, even if they don't seek our good in return. 
even when they don't recognize our actions as love. I also appreciate the realism here. Jesus assumes that we do, in fact, have enemies. Most of us don't like to think of other people that way, but there are folks out there who are committed to greed and violence, who have either harmed us directly or who are actively seeking our destruction. They are more than just opponents on the other side of a philosophical debate. They violate what any sane person would call the common good. I can think of a few international dictators who fit this bill, for example. And Jesus says to love them, not in order to shame them, not to win them over, or as Proverbs puts it, to heap burning coals on their heads, as satisfying as that sounds. No, we're to love them because God loves them. Because God makes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on them too. I cannot pretend to know what this looks like in every situation. But it could start, at least, with prayer. When we pray for someone, when we lift them up to God's light, it is not about excusing their behavior or taking away consequences for their actions, or abdicating our primary responsibility to protect the vulnerable. It's allowing for the possibility, the possibility that God can work a change in them, as well as in us, and if not in our time, then in God's. It is a surrender, I suppose. Not the surrender of defeat, but simply a recognition of what we cannot change all on our own. When we pray for our enemies, we ask God to help us sort out what justice and mercy and humility and generosity might look like. Prayer positions us to listen, to listen deeply without going on defense or offense, to imagine what our enemy's highest good might really be and how it might intersect with ours. We need visions to strive for in order to pursue excellence, to remember that God deserves more from us than plotting mediocrity. Prophet Isaiah gives us such a vision in today's first reading. Imagine a world where parents are not weeping over children who've been gunned down by violence or killed by drone strikes, where these children get to grow up and live to old age. A world where old age is not just about managing decline, but it's about enjoying the benefits of our labor and growing and wisdom. A world where the wolf and the lamb shall feed together and no one needs to be afraid. Now hold on to that for a moment. Picture it.
It's not just a pretty picture. It's a call to action, to be focused and useful. Pretending that God will do everything while we do nothing, it's not just bad theology, it's a cop-out. We began this preaching series with what, what God requires of us, namely to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. Forget about doing it all perfectly. Is it even possible? It's true. We cannot achieve this vision as individuals who are obsessed with our personal scorecards. But we can do more than just dream of a different future. We can pray, and then we can act. We can protect the young and honor the old. We can spend our time and our money in ways that reflect our hopes and not just our fears. We can use the political power we've been given and vote. This is part of how we repair what is broken in our world. This is what wholeness begins to look like. In the name of the one who gives us a vision worth living for and the call to work toward it. Amen.